without further ado, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. We're still in verse 4. And for those of you that might just be joining us, we've been taking uh, a season to go through the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, This has often been called the love chapter because in it, Paul gives us a description of what love is and what love is not. It is that chapter that's often read in weddings, um, and it's famous for that, but it is at the heart of what love is. There is no uh, succinct definition, uh, like a a succinct definition of, of love. Rather, Paul gives us descriptions of what it is, what it looks like, what it does not look like. And so we've just kind of been slowing down word for word, looking at this in hopes that God would, would, uh, by his spirit, change our hearts to be more loving. We believe Santa Barbara needs more than just words, right? It needs love. It needs the supernatural power of the spirit of God expressed in love. Santa Barbara needs the love of God uh, and we're really hoping, I'm really hoping and praying that the love of God would be poured abroad into my heart and your heart and our hearts, that Santa Barbara would be changed by that. They would hear the truth of the gospel, but they'd also see love that they'd never seen before in their lives. And for that reason, they'd want the truth of the gospel because they're like, gosh, these people are the most loving people I've ever met in my life. And so we're digging into this. I'm already preaching. That's not supposed to be my sermon. Let's get into the actual sermon. I might get back to that first one at the end of this sermon. Whatever. Let's just start from verse one. We'll end uh, towards the end of verse four. Paul says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned even but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, do according to us what your word has said. We bow our knees before it, understanding that it is the revelation of God that points us first and foremost to the Son of God. And so, Lord, as we, as we read these words, may you read our hearts. As the author of Hebrews says, your word is is more than just a book, it's more than just literature, it's more than just a self-help guide, it is the living and active word of God, it is uh, comparable to a double-edged sword, able to divide and perceive the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. And so Lord, where we are so muddled up in the the things that we're wrestling with right now that we don't even know, we maybe even don't even have the self-awareness today to know what our thoughts and intentions are deep down within, may your word open those dark corners up that we might be able to see those dark corners and step back and say, oh wow, I am in desperate need of of Jesus uh, to change my heart. Lord, may your word do that today. Cover me right now as I attempt to speak about what your word has already said. Your word is what we need. Let me stay out of the way and just explain 
uh, to the best of my ability and, uh, and to the best of your ability of what you are saying prophetically to the church right now today. We want to leave this place more with than just a lecture from a guy. We want to leave with a word from the Lord. And so may you speak to us the way that you do to each person right where they're sitting and as they leave. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I like to read stories, like children's stories, no reason. And some are better than others. I came across this one. I'll just read it to you right now. There once was a kangaroo who became an athletics champion. Uh, however, with the success, this kangaroo became arrogant and nasty. Uh, he spent a lot of his time making fun of others. And his favorite target was this cute little penguin. Penguin whose walk was slow and clumsy and that often prevented the penguin from even finishing the race. Now, one day, a fox... Uh, who is in charge of organizing all the races in town, uh, let everyone know that his favorite for the next race was this poor penguin. Of course, everybody <laughs> laughed at the joke. But still, this big-headed kangaroo did more than laugh. Kangaroo got angry. And he ridiculed the penguin even more than usual. The penguin didn't even want to take part in the race, so distraught and broken and humiliated he was, but it was a tradition that everyone in town had to do so. So on the day of the race, he approached the starting line in a group with the, uh, uh, that was following the fox, and the fox led them up to the mountain while everyone made fun of the penguin, commenting on whether he would roll down the mountain or just slide down on his stomach. But when they reached the top, everybody shut up. The top of the mountain turned out to be a crater that had been filled with water, making it essentially a lake. At this point, the fox gave the starting signal, saying first to the other side wins. The penguin, excited, weighed, uh, waddled clumsily to the water's edge, but once he was in the water, his speed was unbeatable. And he won the race by a long distance. Meanwhile, the kangaroo, who was so arrogant in his treatment of the penguin and everybody else, barely managed to reach the other side, tearful, humiliated, and half-drowning. Although it seemed like the penguin was waiting to make fun of the, peng- uh, the kangaroo, the penguin had learned a lot from his suffering. And instead of ridiculing the kangaroo, offered to teach him how to swim. I love this story. I just love stories like this in general. It's, I get to tell a lot of stories these days to my kids. I like this one because it tells us a little bit about arrogance uh, with a a, a little extra layer of nuance because at this point, we're getting a lot of insight about pride. We're right in the middle of a grouping of descriptions that are antithetical to love, right, that are in the pride group. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Those are all kind of similar in the sense that uh, they come from pride. I love this story because it gets at a slightly more nuanced layer of what arrogance is and how it's different from boasting and even rudeness. It's a little bit more sinister in what we see in the way that the kangaroo acts towards the penguin, and everybody else, something I'll bring up in a few minutes. 
But what is arrogance really? Uh, before we uh, talk a little bit more about this kangaroo, let's talk about it from the perspective of Paul, who's speaking about arrogance, the symptoms of arrogance that are actually all over this letter. It comes up in chapter four, verse uh, 18 through 19, when Paul uh, speaks in this very book. Uh, he speaks to a grouping of people that are basically arguing, and I'll just read the whole section. He says in verse 18, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And so the background there, there are these people that are kind of taking jabs at Paul and his gospel, and he rolls in on the scene. He's like, hey, well, I'm gonna, come, I'm gonna come address some of these problems, and we'll see if they really have the power of the Holy Spirit or not. In other words, he's saying they're arrogant. They speak, they, they give a, a big show, but what's the result of all of their talk? There's no power there. There's one example. Uh, another example is in the same chapter, verse six of chapter four. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, uh, some of the things he was speaking about before, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written in the scriptures that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Uh, he's speaking to a group of people uh, about favoritism, that you won't choose this tribe or this clique, or you won't uh, more uh, highly associate yourself with this uh, grouping of people over the other. You're all a part of the body of Christ. Don't get puffed up. And so uh, that word for arrogance literally means to be puffed up. Uh, or to be inflated, if you want to know the, the exact definition, to be inflated beyond your normal size. Think of like a puffer fish, you know? Uh, I like to think of the Wizard of Oz. You know, all throughout that narrative, there's this guy who has this big voice who's just shouting orders, and he's just this big old, uh, just big a veneer on the screen, and yet at the end, Dorothy pulls back that, that little curtain, what she see? This little dude behind the curtain speaking into a microphone. He's not all that powerful, is he? He's arrogant. He's inflated beyond his actual size and reality. And there's more examples. There's chapter five, verse two, where Paul says, uh, he's speaking about this, this person in the church who's living a sexually immoral lifestyle, and he says, are you arrogant? Not, not to that person, but to the whole church. Because not only do they not care in this example, but they're actually bragging about it. They're laughing about it. It's not a big deal. Sin is not a big deal to them. And so uh, uh, this specific example is adultery and incest. And he, and he says, are you arrogant? Ought you not, not rather grieve and mourn? Uh, over sin in your midst. And then there's another example in chapter eight, verse one, where people are growing in their spiritual maturity and they're using that knowledge to kind of treat uh, less mature people in the church uh, in, a, in a condescending way. And he again calls them arrogant. So these are the examples that pop up. Uh, what all of them have in common is that it starts from a place of pride, but it ends with hurting other people in the church. If you want to know where arrogance goes differently, that's it. It begins to hurt people. It begins to have people as its object. What's the difference between the pride of arrogance, which we're talking about now, 
and say boasting, which we spoke about last week. Uh, Boasting, you could think of it in this way, is how you treat yourself, how you posture yourself. Uh, It might come from a place of uh, insecurity. I might feel insecure, and so I build myself up to kind of alleviate uh, that deficit that I'm feeling. I, I speak myself up. I put myself out there. I maybe embellish my record a little bit. Uh, I brag about myself because I'm really trying to uh, attend to some insecurities. Boasting is how you treat yourself. Arrogance is a little bit farther and a little more sinister. Arrogance is how you treat other people in light of yourself. Um, the Greeks had a word for this uh, in Jesus' day to differentiate between you know, pride that might be healthy and okay and a pride that's actually destructive. And I think of pride in this sense, like when my, when my kids do something that's incredible and I just feel that surge of joy in my heart. I'm proud of my daughter. I'm proud of my son. Uh, or maybe you break a, a record and you're feeling good and accomplished about it or maybe your business hits this milestone. You're like, yes, that's great. Uh, that confidence that comes from, from things like that or a sense of pride over somebody else, in that, in that instance, you're actually not proud of yourself so much as you're proud of somebody else. You're praising somebody else. That is a natural inclination of a healthy heart. Uh, the, the Greeks had a word for, for the, the dark side of pride. They called it hubris. Hubris spoke of an excessive pride leading to the creation of enemies in your life. Uh, I think of Paul who said on numerous occasions, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sober judgment. So that sense of being inflated, right? You're going beyond just being proud of accomplishments. You're, you're actually inflating yourself, uh, boasting about things, and in this case, in the case of arrogance, you're actually moving into another realm where you're attacking other people and pushing them down. For the Greeks, and I quote, hubris described an act intentionally designed to dishonor and shame the victim or the other person, like the kangaroo. Kangaroo wasn't just satisfied with being the fastest animal in the kingdom. He actually wanted to stomp on the penguin. He wanted to ridicule the penguin, wanted to shame the penguin. This is the difference between boasting, which is also bad, and arrogance, which takes on a whole other flavor. Boasting is often maybe the result of insecurities. Arrogance is maybe the result of contempt. You're not just satisfied with with curing your own insecurity. You want to put other people down. For this reason, arrogance can take on violent forms, cruelty even. Arrogance is really uh, boasting you can think of as pride wounded. Arrogance is pride weaponized. It is you going on the attack. We see examples of this. Psalm 140 verse 5, I believe this is David speaking. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me. How's that? And with cords they have spread a net. Besides the way they have set snares for me. They're out to destroy me in one way or the other. And so arrogance comes from the same place that boasting comes from, comes from the same place that rudeness comes from, we'll talk about next week. Uh, But arrogance seems to be a slightly more developed evil inside. 
And so because of that, when I notice myself being arrogant, I get a little scared. Um, we all have insecurities, right? We're, we're working with Jesus, walking with Jesus to satisfy those insecurities in his adequacy, not our own. Um, but when I get to the place where I am thinking about other people falling, um, a litmus test for myself, this might not work for you, um, but just a, if it helps for me, a litmus test for me is to ask myself, am I happy about that person's success? Sometimes I'm not. Uh, sometimes I'm jealous, right? But there's other times where anger wells up within me. I mean, anger. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No? Just me. It's cool. It's like that thing. Maybe you know that thing. It's like, for me, like, sometimes if I'm not careful, I start replaying in my mind. Like, oh, I wish this, you know? Or if I could replay, or if, if I could go back to that situation, I would have done this. And it all has as, as its result the downfall of the other person who maybe hurt me or did something wrong to me or maybe I just feel like they don't deserve it or I deserve it. <clears throat> it all comes from the same place. And uh, when, I, when I sense that I'm being arrogant, I get, I get afraid because I'm on a trajectory that's deeper into a place of darkness than I, I was before. There's a place where I, I begin to call out uh, on God's mercy, Lord, save me. I'm clearly not able to stop myself. I've gotten this far. You know, when things like that come along, one of the dangers of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or I shouldn't say the danger of the Bible, the danger of our inclination when we read lists like this, negative lists, love is not this, love is not that, is to immediately go into problem solving and fixing. Like, okay, uh, I need to not be arrogant, and I need to not be rude, and I need to be more patient. We make these checklists, and we try to do them or to not do what we're not supposed to do, and we fail miserably, and so then we try harder. What we should really do, and, and Jesus says something I'll, I'll read in a minute that kind of, uh, kind of explains the reason behind this, but we should... Start by asking why. Been asking why a lot. Why do we feel the things that we feel? Why do we act the way that we act? This is basic emotional and social awareness. Is to begin to get into the habit of asking why you act, uh, you feel certain things and act according to those things. Um, and a lot of this involves just probing deeper because. If I lash out on somebody, if I treat them uh, in a contempt, a, a, a way that expresses contempt, or I try to push people down, often the first thing that I, I bring up when I ask the why question is, well, they don't deserve what they have. Or I deserve what they have. Or they had it coming. Or I'm just upset. They slighted me two months ago, and there's a lot of usually entitlement on the surface. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to help us to ask what's underneath some of those driving things that are causing us to act the way that we do. Um, there's a story, goes back a, a little bit, um, 
an author by the name of Carl speaks about. He says, as the study of uh, pharmacology developed, researchers analyzed this family of willow trees to find the active ingredient that relieved people's pain. Turns out, at a certain point, people were chewing on willow trees, the leaves and the bark, and strangely enough, their headaches and toothaches and all sorts of things just started to disappear. And so these scientists started analyzing uh, the willow tree, and they started pulling apart different elements of it, looking for that active ingredient. You know, oh, maybe it's the yellow color. Is it the yellow color? And they discovered after some time, no, that, that yellow color comes from the tar of the bark. Oh, what about the crunchiness? You know, when I chew on it, it's crunchy. Maybe it's the crunchiness. No, that was the fiber that gives the bark its firmness. Oh, what about that bitter taste? Bitter taste, is, that, is there something involved in that? And they discovery. Yeah, it's the bitter taste that comes from the compound itself, which they ended up naming acetylsalicylic acid. Yes, thank you, the scientists behind the sound booth. (laughs) All the giftings of the body in operation. In 1893, Felix Hoffman of Bayer Company of uh, Germany discovered a process to pull that acid out of the tree bark and turn it into aspirin. This is the type of thing that you and I, as followers of Jesus, should be doing with our hearts. This is just a a further down the process of messy church, right? The process of spiritual and emotional health. What is the real culprit? What is the real active ingredient that's causing us to be arrogant? If you just leave today just, being, just saying, I'm just going to not be arrogant tomorrow, you're really dealing with the symptom. What is the active ingredient that is causing uh, arrogance or boasting or any number of things to, to come out of you? Jesus tells us, as I brought up a few minutes ago, he tells us, he alludes to the active environment of that ingredient uh, when he says in Mark 7, verse 20 through 22, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. I, I love that because that lets other people in your life off the hook. Because what I often reason is that it's other people doing this to me. That's why I'm defensive. You know, it's their fault. Jesus says, no, it's not outside of you. It's actually inside of you. People can't control what you, how you... Uh, uh, feel and how you behave and react. What's inside of you is what defiles you. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Then he gives examples of evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance. Arrogance comes from the heart. Jesus says that the underlying issue is not external things, it's not your circumstances, it's not other people, that doesn't create anger or pride or arrogance, you create those things. Your heart creates those things. Paul takes it a step further in his description by saying that the heart is hardened in rebellion towards God apart from the, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says it's, it's the, the problem, the active ingredient is in the heart. Paul says the active ingredient in the heart is rebellion. And it's actually rebellion against God. You may say, well, I don't hate God. Man, you're taking this a little too far. I just hate people. 
People are awful. God is awesome. I love God, hate people. But it, the testimony of Scripture actually doesn't separate the two. First uh, John chapter four verse twenty says, "If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen." The Bible connects the two your relationship to God with your relationship with other people. That's why we get uh, glimpses of this, like the the Ten Commandments, right? That's why it's specifically designed to be first about God. The first half is about our relationship with God. The second half is about our relationship with people. Our relationship with God is what flows into our relationship with people. That's why Jesus, again, for example, would say, when asked what are the most important, what's the most important thing that humanity can do in this life? He would say, Essentially, the most important command is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor. Same thing. Loving God flows into loving neighbor. That would mean hating neighbor flows out of hating God. And Paul says this, that it's any disconnect with people when we're enslaved to arrogance, we're enslaved to rudeness, boasting, all of those things. It's really a symptom of the active ingredient of a broken relationship with God. Uh, He speaks specifically about this in Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, speaking about humanity in general, although they, they knew that he was out there, that he existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. There's the rebellion right there. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so this is the problem of arrogance in that it really exposes a disconnect, a distortion in our hearts, that something's wrong inside. And in that way, uh, as, as believers or, or people that maybe, maybe you don't even know if you're a believer, you don't even know if you're a Christian, whatever, wherever you're at right now, this is actually a good thing to be confronted with. Not a guilt-inducing thing like, oh gosh, God is just getting on my case because I'm, I'm this or I'm that. It's actually doing this in his kindness to reveal like, hey, there's something in you I want to heal that has to do with your relationship with me. Once we get this right, you'll notice this starting to heal as well. The problem of arrogance is that if we allow it to take root in our hearts, it, it, it simply exposes a deep deficit inside us and actually shows and reveals to us that we're on this self-destructive path that we're choosing to take. Paul, when he was speaking to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy, said for in those days, in our days, people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, You go on to list a bunch of other qualities, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, uh, so on and so forth, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Same thing Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, right? These people are arrogant. They have a lot of talk but none of the power of God. He'd go on to say, avoid such people. And he would describe them in in that context as these people that were preying on the the vulnerable in that community, 
in this case, these uh, older, weaker women and burdening them. He, was, he also go on to say, they're always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. They're puffed up, but there's nothing inside. He'd bring up a couple uh, from Exodus and compare them to, to them, Janes and Jambres, who opposed Moses out of their arrogance. And he would say, so these people who are arrogant also oppose the truth. People who are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, he gives off a whole... Uh, list of, of, of broken qualities, but one of them is arrogance. And let me just boil this down. He's saying, an arrogant heart has the appearance of godliness but denies its power, is constantly learning but never able to get to real truth, and is corrupted in the way that it thinks and disqualified regarding the faith. Or as John said so succinctly, there's a lot of talk, I love God, I know God, but because of these these, these other qualities, do they really know him? How can they know a God that they have never seen if they're treating people that they have seen in such and such way? The problem of arrogance is that it reveals something wrong inside that God desperately wants to fix. The late Dallas Willard once put it this way. He said, you are forming right now. You are constantly forming. You are who you are right now because of thousands of different decisions and actions and behaviors you have done over the course of many years to get you to this point. It also means everything that you are doing now, your thought life, your decisions, your behaviors, your habits are forming you to become who you will become. Everything that we do is spiritually forming us. And so if we're entertaining this list of things, things like arrogance, if we hate and show contempt for people, um, it's really exposing a self-destructive path in which we're choosing to push people away and destroy our own souls. And the truth is, you were meant for more than that. It might feel satisfying in the moment, can't, I am not going to give this person anything less than my contempt. But it will slowly eat away at you. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's eating away at you now. Perhaps you wake up in the morning or go to sleep at night full, replaying scenes in your mind that are controlling your your well-being, maybe your joy has been sapped because of other people in your life and your sense of, of loss or your sense that you're not getting enough or doing enough. And the Bible just points to the deeply rooted problem that's behind everything else like it, this problem of sin. For those of you that maybe aren't familiar with the word sin, sin is really just that biblical word that describes for us that orientation of the human being's heart that wants to do it their own way. I did it my way, famous song. I did it my way. It's that sense of human independence that wants to do things apart from God. It might play out into individual sins, being rude, being arrogant, but it comes from it comes from an orientation of the heart. 
I want to do things my way, not God's way. And that will slowly sap your strength, your soul. It will destroy you, and it will destroy the relationships in your life. And Paul offers you and I a better way. The way that you and I were meant to live. What you and I were meant for. What is the opposite of arrogance? <laughs> love! <laughs> but what does love look like in this case? Love looks like the fear of the Lord. The opposite of arrogance, yes, is love, but in this specific instance is the fear of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, we get a glimpse of this. God says through the prophet Malachi, for behold, the day is coming. He uses very vivid, scary language here. He says, the day is coming that's burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, okay? Uh, the prophet here isn't saying there's like an oven floating in the sky. He's using prophetic imagery to say there is coming a day of judgment where people will stand before God in all of the things that they boasted about, the ways that they've treated other people, the injustices, the cruelty, and they will stand before God with everything that they've done. Romans chapter chapter 3 tells us Romans 3 tells us that we will stand before God and because of, his, because of the law, because of his goodness and perfection, every mouth will be shut up in the presence of the living God. There will be nothing we have achieved in this life or spoken or done or accumulated that will be enough. We will see him for who he is and our mouths will be rendered silent. What are you going to say in that day? And Malachi is saying, hey, uh, perhaps for some of you this is maybe a comfort. You have been pushed down by arrogant people. You've been taken advantage of. You've been passed over for promotion. You have been fired. You have been sullied. You have been abused. You have been mistreated. And maybe you're looking at those situations and you're like, where is justice? Where is Where is what I deserve? Where is what what that person deserves? And you might not ever see it in this life, but God is saying through Malachi, it is coming. God is a God of justice, and every mouth will be silenced, and the arrogant will have to face the living God. And then he goes on to all of the arrogant people who don't, don't want that course for their lives, and he says, but for you who fear my name, what is the opposite of arrogance? Biblically speaking, it is the fear of the, of the Lord. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The fear of the Lord. Uh, pops up again in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 through 6. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates pride, this kind of pride. He hates what it does to people's hearts. He hates what it does to people around those who are arrogant. It's it's destructive. Be assured, the arrogant will not go unpunished. Then look at the next line. But by steadfast love and faithfulness, that iniquity is atoned for. Isn't that incredible? God doesn't answer our arrogance with arrogance. He answers our arrogance 
with steadfast love and mercy. He answers your hardened, rebellious heart towards him with kindness. In fact, Paul would say in Romans, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. He doesn't beat us into the corner so that we'll repent. It's his mercy and it's his kindness and it's his goodness towards you. You have answered him in rebelliousness and arrogance and treated other people. I have treated other people this way. And yet he still calls out to you, I have not been this way to you. I will be kind to you. I love you. I've given everything for you. And the, res- the right response to someone who who've connects with that is the fear of the Lord. Now, this is not fear uh, as in being afraid. That's not what I'm talking about. Like you're scared of God. Like he's going to crush you under his, his thumb. The fear of the Lord in the Bible usually refers to a reverence and an awe that leads to humility and repentance. It's that idea of like, whoa, I had no idea. Where the mouth is closed, the bragging and the boasting leave, and you see God in all of his glory and perfection and holiness, and something in you is stirred to bow down low and to say, I am, I am truly nothing. And that causes the person to surrender all of their hurts, all of their pain, all of their weapons, metaphorically speaking, to the Lord. And that only comes by the heart being supernaturally changed. The fear of the Lord is not something you can just kind of stir up. You can't just repent. The Bible seems to suggest over and over and over that our hearts are desperately wicked that we do not naturally choose the good route. We are rebellious by our orientation against God. And so that's why John would say to one of the most religious people in Israel's time, in in John, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nobody can enter the kingdom of God. He was saying this to one of the most religious professional people in Israel at that time, the leader of Israel. He's saying, you will never get into the kingdom of God through your criteria, through your checklists, through your religiosity, through what you look like, through your resume, through your church attendance, through your prayer life, through your scripture reading. You must be born again. And thousands of years later, the Spirit of God is saying to the church today, saying to people who are in a church building but perhaps do not know the Lord, you must be born again. Perhaps you're in this room today and you're curious about this stuff, but there's something that's just not right. Maybe there's a disconnect in you. You don't know what it is. Perhaps you need to be born again today. You say, well, how do I do that? The Bible declares over and over that this is a supernatural act of God. You can't do it yourself. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. We see in Ezekiel the Spirit of God that actually changes the human being's spirit and heart to long after God, to desire the things of God, where he exchanges, he uses that metaphor, I'm gonna exchange your heart of stone, that rebellious heart that hates the things of God, and I'm gonna give it a heart of flesh, that metaphor that speaks of a heart that desires the things of God. You must be born again. If you're asking this morning, how do I do it? I'm ready right now, come on, let's do it. You're already there. 
If there's a desire percolating inside you, that is a good sign that the Holy Spirit has got you right where he wants you. All you need to do today is to respond in sheer faith and say, I believe. And in my belief, I'm going to follow this Jesus wherever he takes me. If that's you today, you can do that right where you sit. Perhaps declare your allegiance to this Christ by uh, being baptized, as he calls us, in water signifying that you have died your old life and you are being raised to a new life, but this comes through an act of faith by the work of God. Maybe that's you, but you, uh, regardless of where you're at, we have to be born again. We have to be changed from the inside out. Now, if you are born again, you can begin to ask yourself some questions. Why do I feel entitled? Maybe you see little glimpses of the dark side of your own heart kind of erupting in arrogance and pride. You're like, that is a a sign to me that something is wrong. What do I do about it? Well, you can ask the Spirit of God who is inside you, why do I feel so entitled? Why do I lash out when that person gets something good? Why do I move beyond competitiveness to actually wanting to destroy people? Why do I say things that are so hurtful? Where is this coming from? And allow God, it might be a different reason for all of you. I know uh, for me recently, I've been able to tie, just in prayer with the Holy Spirit, been able to tie arrogance to a a kind of a threatening feeling inside of me. Like that, that person is threatening me in some way. I feel threatened. And once I begin to see that, that deep-rooted fear in me, it's really fear for me personally, I can give that fear to the Lord instead of just like the symptom. Oh, just stop being arrogant. Now I can give the fear inside me, the bad fear, uh, to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I don't need to feel entitled. I don't need to fear what other people uh, are getting. I don't need to fear my, my, my supposed inadequacy. Of course I'm inadequate. I can embrace that today. You're the one who makes people adequate. Lord, heal me of my arrogance today. And wherever you're at with that as you pray, you can allow God to peel back the layers of your independence and little by little begin to lay that arrogance, the weapons of our pride down before him. The opposite of arrogance is love, as expressed in the fear of God. And it flows out of a heart that's been born again by the Holy Spirit. And think of right now, just think of that situation in your own life where someone has you in a corner. Or someone ha- uh, is threatening you in, in one way or the other. You may feel threatened. Or where someone, you feel out of control and you can really tie it to one specific person. Whatever it is. There's somebody out there and you feel this inclination to fight against them. Think of that person. Think of that situation. With that person or situation in mind, I want you to now imagine yourself not responding out of insecurity or entitlement or fear but responding out of a heart that is liberated to love the way that Jesus would love if he were in the same situation as you. How would that change 
the course of the situation you're in. To do, as Paul says, to do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Or as Paul says in Romans, to outdo one another uh, in showing honor. What would it be like? What would it do to the climate of your workplace, your family, your relationships? Instead of responding out of arrogance, which everybody in the world does, responding supernaturally out of a liberated heart of love. How would, it, how would it affect your enemies if you kept doing that? The kangaroos in your life. How would it change you, maybe is the most important question to ask. Might revolutionize your life. And you can live this way. Even though you're telling yourself right now, some of you, I will never be free from this type of pride. No, you can live this way. The gospel is the good news that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near to those who are in Christ, that the blessings of heaven have come to bear presently on those today who are in Christ. Everything that is possible in heaven is made possible in heaven through Christ. Your will be done in heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel means you can do these things through the power of Jesus Christ inside you. He is bringing the resources of heaven to bear upon your life right now. Do you receive it? If you want to, perhaps the first step would be to lay down the weapons of our pride and arrogance before the true king and allow him to begin to heal some of those places in our heart that cause us to lash out. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, so we come before you in song and in prayer and through the elements. We ask that you would meet us today as you have been so faithful to do. We choose this morning to wait upon you. Wait upon you, God. So much of our aggression and hostility and violence towards people and towards you comes from a restless heart. Heart that is out of control and that is so desperately seeking to bring some semblance of control to it. Recall the prayer of St. Augustine centuries ago who described this very thing when he said, the human heart is restless. until it finds rest in God. So I pray today, as we come before you, as we remain before you, our restless hearts would begin to slow down and stop. 
and look to you and find healing for so much of the things that scatter us and cause us to lash out. Lord, we don't want to settle today for just being morally right. A couple qualities and characteristics that we have under our belt so that we can brag to ourselves and others that we're a little less boastful and a little less prideful and a little less rude. God, we want hearts that are changed with love. What we want is people to see healed hearts that have been let loose on the city of Santa Barbara. So help us to drink deeply today as we sing, as we take of the bread and of the cup, as we bow before you in humility. May you change us and heal us in Jesus' name. Amen.